This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. When schools closed their doors to in-person learning, student performance in reading and math declined dramatically between 2019 and 2021. Now that schools have reopened, many people hope that students will recover. But is that hope realistic? Can students really make up one to two years of lost learning? New facts are just arriving about student recovery from the pandemic. NWEA, an education organization specializing in student assessment, has just released its latest results on student performance on tests administered this past spring. Now, I'm pleased to have with me on the Education Exchange, Karen Lewis, an author of NWEA's latest report, which is entitled Student Achievement in 2021-2022, Cause for Hope and Continued Urgency. So thank you, Karen, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, Karen, after months and years of bad news, parents are waiting for an optimistic report on student achievement. And your report has a subtitle that contains the phrase, cause for hope. So what's hopeful in your report? I'm glad that you picked up that on the title of the report, and it was our way of concisely communicating that it is very much a mixed bag of results that we see this year. And what gives us hope is that when we look at the types of gains students made in the 21-22 school year, the good news here is that the gains students are making have returned to be parallel with pre-pandemic averages. So we're seeing the same rates of growth in 21-22 that we see comparing back to pre-pandemic years. And this is a sign of hope because compared to last year in 2020-21, where we saw students were making gains at pretty sluggish paces, this at least means we see some rebounding in terms of the growth and the gains students are making. So just exactly what students are we talking about? Who participates in your uh, testing uh, or your assessment uh, project? So our assessment is used in roughly a quarter of public schools across the country. In this particular research study, we look at grades three through eight, and we have a sample of about 13 million unique students from all across the country and representing over 25,000 public schools. So you have a lot of students in your survey, uh, but are they representative of the U.S. population of students? Can we really infer from your results to you know, the country as a whole? They are roughly representative of the United States population. We have slightly more suburban schools and slightly more white students, but if we look at the comparability between the demographic breakdown in our sample and what we see in the representative sample of U.S. schools and students, it's pretty comparable. Well, are your tests used for accountability purposes? So are they affected at all by the fact that kids are doing tests and teachers are administering tests because it's part of the state requirements or local requirements. So our, our assessment is an interim assessment and it's used in the fall, winter and spring typically and not for accountability purposes, but really used more as a temp check to help provide educators with information about where their students are, where their strengths are and where their challenges lie, with the goal of really helping students and schools tailor education experiences and instruction in the classroom to help support kids and get them to where they need to be next. So we would call these low stakes tests rather than high stakes tests. Now, do we feel like the students take this seriously? I don't think this is a big issue when you're talking about kids in third grade or eighth grade. That's really more of a high school issue, but 
but you feel like the kids are taking these tests and they're a pretty good measure of how kids would do on any kind of a test. We do, and we use some uh, assessment per, or, uh, techniques to help make sure kids are staying engaged. In particular, we look for whether or not kids are responding really quickly and responding so quickly that it's clear they didn't even engage with the item. And so we're monitoring test engagement throughout the testing experience, and we give gentle prods to students when we're picking up on signs of that disengagement. And in our research specifically, we always make sure to tune into those item level metadata to make sure that we're using responses that seem to be from students that are particularly engaged in the testing experience. So you talk about an achievement gap in your in your study. So what do you mean by achieve? That word gets used in lots of different ways. So how are you using the concept of achievement gap? I appreciate your attention to detail. And I, I want to be clear, when we talk about achievement gaps in this most recent research, what we're doing is comparing current levels achievement mid-pandemic and looking back to where we'd expect students to be based on baseline averages from pre-pandemic times. So anytime I use the word achievement gap, I'm specifically talking about differences in achievement levels or achievement gains in the current year relative to what we'd expect based on pre-pandemic standards. Because you have a lot of data from a long period of time, and so you can look at what the normal trajectory of students is as they go from one grade level to the next grade level. And you're asking the question, are they making that same you know, progress from year to year as they historically have done? Exactly. And because our assessment is designed to measure both achievement and growth over time, we can take both of those pieces of information to account and compare average achievement levels or status levels. But we can also compare average growth rates back to pre-pandemic averages to paint a more complete picture of what's happening. So I'm having a little trouble with the concept percentile, because in your report, you say that students are down five to 10 percentiles in math and two to four percentiles in reading, depending on which grade they're in. And so exactly what is a percentile? Can you translate that into sort of months of learning or years of learning or something that a parent can get their hands around? So we've, we've made the principal decision in our research not to translate our findings into months of learning. There's some concerns with that approach given the way we know to, students tend to learn and grow over time. And it's not an equivalent um, thing to speak about a week earlier in the school year versus later in the school year. It's really a little bit more complicated. So we try to shy away from using those kinds of metrics because there's some statistical properties underlying them that can be problematic. We use percentiles in this report because that's a metric that's really familiar to our partners, the educators and school leaders that are using these data to understand what's happening for their students. And I won't go into a deep statistics lecture, but to remind our listeners that a percentile is basically telling us about how a student is achieving relative to their peers. And so because we have such a large sample of data, we can say here is what we'd expect a nationally representative average for a particular group of students. And we mean a particular group of students in terms of their age, their grade, the subject, and how much instruction they've received. We account for that in our models. So we can say relative to other students in the same grade and same subject who've received the same amount of instruction, how does your achievement score compare? And we make that into a percentile ranking. So for instance, a student at the 60th percentile, they're achieving as well as or above 60% of their academic peers. All right, so I understand that. But um, I guess we really have to focus on differences here because that's a, you know that was the point that I extract from what you just said. And so and there is a difference between math and reading. So in math, you're saying the recovery 
uh, the students are weighed down in math by you know five to ten percentiles and reading less so why, why the difference between math and reading this is a trend we've seen consistently in our reports that math has been harder hit by the pandemic than reading we don't have data at a national level to really pull at the mechanisms, but I think as a whole research and education really points to school and school experiences being more important for the development of math compared to reading. And that you can imagine is because students have more opportunity to pick up learning skill or reading skills in their home environment and their after school programs and all kinds of situations. But it seems like the school day and specific instruction matters more for math. And so what that tells me is that learning in the absence of direct instruction, learning remotely, um, and coupled with all the other challenges we know students and schools face during the pandemic, it was a harder hit for math skill development than it was for reading skill development. And the other comparison we can make is among ethnic groups, we see that black students are eight to 11 percentage points behind in math, four to six points behind in reading. Um, so, that's that's larger, considerably larger than students overall. So, and then similar for Hispanic students. So, um, why do you see these big differences? Is it because the learning loss was so big initially, or is it because the uh, you know recovery is slower? That's a good question. Um, we have consistently seen that the groups that you mentioned, Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous students have shown larger impacts of the pandemic, really out of the gate, starting with fall of 2020. And we don't have mechanisms to speak to why that might be, but I think it's not hard to imagine a scenario where those are the communities that have also been hardest hit by the pandemic and the other myriad ways it has changed our lives. They live in communities often that have been harder hit by the pandemic in terms of the economic, the social and the health consequences. And I think we're seeing a trickle down of that to impacting student achievement. I think it's also important to point out that, of course, race and poverty status are not um, isolated events. And we also consistently see the largest impacts for students in high poverty schools. The good news is that we do see across all race ethnicity groups and across school poverty levels, we do see some evidence of rebounding this year. We see that evidence in terms of growth rates returning to pre-pandemic averages. So we're seeing improvements across all groups, but, and this is a really important, but we know that high poverty schools and students of color have been harder to hit and there is more ground to regain there. So we're seeing improvements, but we still have a very long way to go, and especially so for those students. Um, and I think it's important to know that and consider that when we are figuring out how best to support students and help them with their recovery, that we're paying close attention to which students have been the hardest hit so that we can meet the needs proportional with the services that we provide. Now, on the other hand, the Asian students are doing, uh, well, they are least, are least worst off, I should say, huh? because everybody's uh, you know, scores are down from the uh, where they, you would have expected them to be had there been no pandemic. But the differential is less for Asian students than for white students and of course for black and Hispanic students. So why, why do you think that the Asian students don't show as big a loss? I think it's important to point out that these differences and losses are pretty much one-to-one -one correlation with the differences that already existed prior to the pandemic that we had Asian American students and white students were well above national averages prior to the pandemic. Hispanic, indigenous and black students were already below national averages. So the differential impacts we've seen over the last two years are just a exponential magnitude of uh, magnification of those pre-existing inequities. 
And I can't speak to in our data what caused those inequities to begin with. I think what we're seeing here is just a continuation of systems that serve some students better than others. And we're better equipped to help students throughout the last two years in terms of the challenging circumstances that schools have encountered. Well, I could agree with you, but I'm going to disagree slightly because I've done some research uh, recently that shows that actually the biggest gains over the last 50 years in terms of test score performance has been among uh, students of color, whether they're black, they're Hispanic, or they're Asian, they have been making greater progress than white students. It's been true decade after decade for five decades up to 2017. So the fact that we're seeing disproportionately large declines for black and Hispanic students and not for Asian students is not necessarily, it's true that Asian students were growing much faster than everybody else, but uh, black and Hispanic students were showing greater improvements than white students. Uh, so I think that what, what's really disappointing about what's happened as a result of the pandemic is a lot of the gains that were being made in society, the, the closing of the gap between blacks and white was the, the gap that existed 50 years ago had closed by one half. Mm -hmm. And now it's opening up again by a significant amount. And so I think that's a particularly disturbing situation. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Uh, I would just agree that I it is a particularly disturbing scenario. And I think we're seeing evidence of the kind of layered accumulation of disadvantages that these communities have faced over the two years. And it's especially disheartening if this will be setting back any time, any, any narrowing of those inequities that we were seeing prior to the onset of the pandemic. And to me really calls for um, an equitable approach to pandemic recovery and making sure we're supporting students that have been hardest hit. So now we also need to look at those in seventh and eighth grade because the story is not nearly as optimistic for them as it is for the younger children. So why do you see a difference between the youngest children those in kindergarten, first, second, third grade, and those who are in seventh and eighth grade this past year, where you didn't see much of the uh, recovery uh, that uh, you talk about? That's right. So we see more hopeful signs of improvements for the youngest students in our report and middle schoolers are really showing signs of being more stagnant. And in some cases, we even have worsening of the unfinished learning and the achievement gaps. It's really hard to say at a national level why that might be the case. I think there's probably multiple factors at play. One could be that in our research and in uh, all the other papers and reports that I've seen come out of folks doing similar research, there's been evidence that the youngest students have been the hardest hit that elementary students in particular really suffered from going to remote schooling and were the least capable of being able to independently engage with online instruction and as a result are showing larger impacts. So it could be that that message got out and schools were taking a kind of triage approach. If there are limited resources to be supporting students, maybe they were paying more attention to what was happening for the youngest learners. It could also be that middle school students are a harder group of kids to intervene upon and get them caught back up. I can also imagine a scenario where for those students where their social lives are such a key part of their identity and their experience, it was particularly difficult to be remote for so long and re-engaging in the school system this last year proved challenging. Um, at, as I said, at the national level, we don't have the mechanisms to really explain what's going on here, but I share your concern that this level of stagnation for middle school students is particularly alarming given the fiscal cliff that we're facing in terms of having federal recovery dollars to use to support student um, recovery from the pandemic, and also knowing that those, school, those students are only in school for so many more years. 
And based on our estimates, it looks like we have five plus years we could expect to see to take to get to recovery for middle school students. And that is not an acceptable timeline since those students will not be with us that long. Well, there's two ways to go with that. And, and one way is to say, you know, in general, we always see the kids learn more in any given year, uh, the younger they are. I mean, the improvement between first and second grade just in the normal course of things is enormous if you look at that standard deviation change that occurs between one grade level and another. And by the time you get to from seventh to eighth grade, it's, it's a much uh, smaller uh, change. So, you know, there's just the, it just, I just sort of see those young minds are so agile and so quick that as soon as you start feeding them, they can lap it all up. So don't you think it's sort of part of human nature that the younger you are, the quicker you can learn, the quicker you can catch, you can catch up? I think that absolutely could be a play that could be a, an additional kind of layer of resiliency for young students who are just sponges and ready to be back in the classroom. I've seen that in my own family where I have a daughter who was in first grade when the pandemic hit. It was so hard and challenging for her to engage in Zoom school during first grade. But then this last year as a third grader, she's now reading 900 page chapter books and was just so ready and eager to be back in the classroom and engage with her peers. And it's just took off in terms of her learning gains. Um, and that gives me hope for younger students, but it also gives me great concern for middle schoolers and how we re-engage them and help them to also achieve recovery. Well, to say nothing of high school students, because what you're finding for middle school students makes me wonder whether or not it's not even a more serious problem when you're talking about high school students who have less time to finish and uh, the challenges might be even greater than what you're observing in your data set. That's right. And our assessment is used in high schools, but less frequently. So we didn't include them in this report. But I share your concern that uh, I really hope that those students are also uh, their needs are being attended to. Well, do you have any hints about the high school in your data that you haven't? Can you share us? Uh, <laughs> no, we don't even include those in our data pool since they're, we just they're, the data there is not as generalizable as we have in those younger grades. All right. So. So what, you know, so anyhow, you, you do say there's a sense of urgency, especially for these kids in middle school. Uh, so what do you think schools should be doing? How, how, what recommendations flow from your analysis? I think the big one is to be really tuned in to where we continue to see um, concerning levels of unfinished learning. And of course, we see unfinished learning across the board. But this latest year, we're seeing those signs of improvement are predominantly in math and for youngest students, the youngest students. So we can expect to see that it's going to take longer to catch up for middle school students. We also can, even though we see greater uh, improvements this year in math, overall math has been harder hit. So there's more ground to regain there. And we expect it will take probably longer to recover in math compared to reading. I think what we need to focus on is that when we talk about what's happened over the last two years, um, what's really been lost is the opportunity to learn. And so we're seeing schools and districts be creative in terms of engaging students and start to rebuild in some of those lost learning opportunities. It's a million dollar question, which of those kinds of strategies is gonna be the most effective? And we have a partnership with researchers at the Harvard Center for Ed Policy Research and the Calder Center at AIR, where we're working with over um, a dozen of our large district partners who are giving us back information about what they're doing at the student level. And we're pairing that with their achievement data to try and start to paint a picture about what seems to be working, what isn't working so that we can both learn lessons about what's effective, but also fail quickly and make sure that we're diverting resources to successful programs as, as we have evidence for what seems to be working. Well, do you have any 
preliminary results or any hypotheses as to what might be working and what might not be working? No preliminary results to share. Apart from, I want to emphasize that 21-22 was not the roaring comeback I think we all hoped for, and it continued to be an incredibly difficult year for districts and schools. And it is a Herculean effort to kick off these kinds of recovery strategies at the scale that matches the need in this moment. And I think we're going to have to prepare ourselves that 21-22 was a challenging year. And even though we're seeing some signs of improvement, schools still have a long way to go and are still figuring out how to get supports to students at the student level in a way that really meets the moment and helps get kids back on track. Well, they got a lot of money from the federal government. There was a lot of resources. There are almost more resources available at the schools today than they, they can utilize. Many superintendents are saying, well, we got to just put it off for another year because we can't spend it this year. So if they have all of these resources, why are they struggling so hard to, to put, put those to work? I think it's been a struggle in terms of just a tuning attention to what strategies might be the ones that are going to help students and then figuring out how to implement them. One of our partners wanted to implement a high dosage tutoring program students and got over 400 responses to their requests for proposals for vendors to come and support them. Imagine the time it takes to comb through all of those vendor responses and decide which one seems to be the most effective and then get to the business of implementing it. That is no easy lift. And I think what I'm hearing from districts is we had 100 problems in 21-22. Unfinished learning was one of those 100 problems. I had to figure out how to get staffs in classrooms. I had to figure out how to get kids bused into the classroom when I was short of both bus drivers and teachers. There was just no end to the challenges schools continue to face. Um, and I think we need to be empathetic to what a hard year it was and make sure that we don't lose sight of the celebration that we saw any improvements at all. Well, thank you very much, uh, Karen. Uh, this has been a fascinating report, very helpful report. There's enough signs of hope in the report to make us feel like uh, we may see some either even better signs of hope uh, in the year to come. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. I am pleased to have had with me today on the Education Exchange, Karen Lewis, Director of the Center for School and Student Progress at NWEA an education organization specializing in student assessment. Karen Lewis is the author of a report by NWEA. It's entitled Student Achievement in 2021-22, Pause for Hope and Continued Urgency. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.